welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Baladandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. Thank you for being here today. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So part two, let's get started. How do you invest in syndications like a pro? Now, last year, and I mentioned this before, I had a lot of friends um, and members within the community who invested in passive, uh, invested passively in real estate syndications. And when I observed them, I realized that sometimes, you know, they really trusted and knew the sponsor, but the deal really didn't match their investing strategy. So it felt like there was a mismatch there. And oftentimes I found, found that people were investing in syndications where there was a business plan uh, and, um, you know, it was a great plan, but they weren't really provided with uh, performance projections, you know, numbers or metrics, something that they could use to see how the, their money would perform over time or use it to compare it to other syndications. And, you know, when you don't have those projections, as you're in in this indication uh, with time you also don't know how the asset is performing is it matching expectations is it not so there are a lot of difficulties when you really aren't given performance projections um sometimes some syndications didn't have distributions for two to three years and again i didn't feel like it matched the strategy the investing investment strategy that these investors had and so with all the confusion and vagueness around these deals there are a lot of myths i am hoping with this education series to empower you so you can do your own due diligence right and um, this is always a two-pronged approach Uh, i want to provide you with resources and i want to give you with uh, give you education i created gw capital this year and i have been co-gping uh, large multifamily deals with my mentors and friends and a lot of you have invested with us again um, so honored that you've trusted us and you've partnered with us but the goal of GW Capital is to bring curated vetted deals to the community and the overall goal is to have transparency accountability and leverage by the end of 2022 we'll have over 800 doors in assets under management and over 150 million dollars in assets under management and if you want to learn more you can hop on to generationalwealthmd.com slash syndication. Um, for those of you who were on the wait list for our recent opportunity in Atlanta, but weren't able to get in, we have another one uh, right now that you could get in. The goal is again to close by the end of 2022. We're targeting a close date of the 28th of December. This will allow you to tap into 100% bonus depreciation before it starts phasing out. 2022 is the last year for 100% bonus depreciation. So it's generationalwealthmd.com slash Atlanta. This again is uh a hot deal a lot of interest so if you are interested make sure you uh, put your soft commits in as soon as possible the deadline for funding is a is it's a really short deadline it's uh before the 14th of december Uh, ideally you want we want to get you in before the 9th of december but what i love about this deal again is that it's a great market but 3.6 percent interest rate locked in which is unheard of in this environment and in this deal you actually have a capital event in year three which means you get the majority of your capital back by the end of year three, which I think are two very attractive things. So uh, for those of you who missed out on the last one, um, take a look at it and uh, put your, uh, you know, if you're interested, put your soft comments in as soon as possible. But that being said, let's get back to what we're talking about, how to invest in a syndication like a pro, part one, and hopefully those of you who are on here already listened to part one, you know, 
the saying is that you vet the sponsor, not the deal. And that's absolutely, absolutely right. Right. That's the simplest way to do it for a lot of you listening to all of this can be uh, for some of you. It may be overwhelming, but the, the most important takeaway is that the sponsor vetting the sponsor is more important than vetting the deal because a good sponsor is being conservative and they have a great track record. You know, they're picking good deals and they're going to execute the business plan. But I find that the part that most people miss is that you also need to find a sponsor whose investment model and the deals that they invest in matches your risk return goals, right? And this is, I want to come back to what I talked about in part one. The most important thing that you need to think about before you even think about investing in syndications is your why, right? Why are you investing in syndications? What's your risk appetite? Uh, what's your return like? Then we move on to vetting a market, vetting the sponsor, vetting the deal. And then finally, I want you to put it all together and do a risk return analysis of the deal and learn how to stress this, the deal. And we're going to go through all of this today. So the why, um, quick overview of what we discussed last time. The most important thing, the reasons why people invest in real estate syndications are going to be for increased returns. Um, average annualized returns from syndications are upwards of 15%. You know, oftentimes it's close to 20% annually. And that is significantly higher than what you're getting when you're investing in the stock market. And that really gets you to financial freedom faster. That's a big reason. Diversification to be invested in an inflation adjusted asset that isn't correlated to the market. That is an important reason. And then tax savings. You know, real estate is tax advantaged. And the reason it is tax advantaged is because the government wants to incentivize um, people who stimulate the economy. And that's what you're doing when you're investing in real estate. So all the deals that we invest in have those tax advantages, which you don't really get when you invest in the stock market. And those are the reasons why most of you are considering investing in syndications. But when you're thinking about your why, I also want you to think about your risk appetite. And I talked about this last time. Um, what is your risk appetite? What kind of deals do you like uh, want to invest in? What's your risk profile like? When we go to the last section, when we talk about risk return analysis, I'm going to talk again about what your criteria for risk should be, what you should be thinking about, and how do you um, de-risk the deal. So we'll get to that. So we think about your risk and then also think about what's important to you. Do you want cash flow upfront? Is Are you more concerned about your capital growing? And so really um, be clear about what those goals are. And then also think about your hold period, right? You have syndications that can last anywhere from three years all the way to 10 years, 20 years. And that's an important question to ask yourself even before you start thinking about sponsors because Again, when you have a longer hold period that mutes your returns, there is more illiquidity. Your your money is in the deal much longer. Um, even if you know if you are you're getting return of capital over time, you still have a significant amount of equity left in that deal. If the risk profile is the same, if you're considering two value add deals which have the same risk profile, it's important to think about uh, all of those things, including the tax consequences. Because in any syndication at exit, you have tax implications. And I always say, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Your decision should be made based on your investment needs. And uh, oftentimes you're, you have higher returns with shorter hold periods just because of the way returns go. The first three years are when you see the massive boost in income, which translates to massive value add. And that's where your money is really working overdrive to uh, uh, to get you those higher returns. And so after year three, the returns start getting muted and you want to know, know what makes sense for you. So think about all of those things. The next thing is, Wedding a market. We talked about this last time. I'm not going to um, rehash it. We'll talk about it a little later when we talk about de-risking. We talked about vetting a sponsor. And, you know, when you vet a sponsor, there are two things you think about. What is their ability to deliver? And that's mostly based on their track record. And then 
are their interests aligned with mine? And that's a, a lot of that is based on how the deal is structured. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then finally, you learn to vet the deal. Again, vetting the sponsor is always going to be more important than vetting the deal. And before we move on to deal analysis, I just want to mention the next 12 to 24 months, I think the most important thing for all of us is going to be to invest in conservative deals, right? It's going to be a period where we're looking for safe deals. Uh, there's going to be flight to safety in terms of the markets we select, in terms of the debt we get, and in terms of the deals that we invest in. And that's that's something that's really important. Now, like I said before, real estate is inflation adjusted it's an inflation adjusted asset and in the hyperinflationary environment that we are both rents and property prices will go up but even in even within real estate as an asset class i feel like it's really important to think about risk and be conservative and that's a big part of what we're doing today right how do you take a deal how do you understand what the underlying risk is how do you de uh, how do you stress test it and how do you de-risk it okay perfect let's get started now when we're going to talk about the deal, we're going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk to you about performance metrics. Okay. Last time we didn't really go into numbers too much. Um, I'm going to talk about numbers. And the reason I'm going to talk about numbers is that you can use this to compare two deals, but it's also a way for you to think about returns, right? And it, when you evaluate syndications, you are going to be given performance metrics and I want you to look at it and really understand it. That's important to me. Now, I'm not going to talk about performance metrics without talking about something called assumptions, right? So the numbers per se don't make sense unless you understand what the sponsor used to arrive at those numbers. So we're going to talk about assumptions. We're going to talk about um, debt because in multifamily, it's all commercial loans, which is different from um, say con the conventional mortgage space or a loan that you would get for your primary home. So we're going to talk about debt. I am going to talk a little bit about fees, uh, as I promised last time. And then we're finally going to take everything together and talk about overall, how do we risk analyze and how do we stress test our deals? Now, uh, let's start off with performance metrics. So this is, this is stuff that I love. Hopefully I'm making sense, but you know, even if you're not following too much of it, remember, you can always keep coming back to this and listening to it. Um, sometimes go watching an investor webinar we actually had one for the deal in atlanta earlier today but when you watch a webinar like that after you've listened to this i think things will click into place and if it still feels like it's too much i want you to the the biggest takeaway is going to be really know what your risk return profile is what what makes sense for you what do you want to see and then find a sponsor who matches that and when you find the right sponsor that you know like and trust they are likely investing in deals uh, that match your risk return profile. So you should be good. So well, you can keep it simple. Um, this is, we have people in here who are investing in syndications for the first time. And we have people who've been doing this for a while and are here to learn and, um, you know, uh, learn to compare deals uh, to risk assess. And so I'm hoping this is helpful for everyone. When we talk about performance metrics, right? How, what are the returns? You know, how is this deal likely to perform over the course of the deal? The important thing to remember that those numbers are going to shift right? It's not, those are not static numbers and they're going to shift based upon the hold period of the deal. If you have a deal where there's a longer hold period, like I was talking about before, the numbers are going to be different. And so it almost doesn't make sense to compare two deals with different hold periods, just in terms of the metrics. The second thing is it's also going to depend, uh, vary based on the risk of the asset, right? So if you have a, we talked about this previously, you have deals that are called core deals, core assets, right? Where it's already stabilized. It's a built up apartment. It's already completely occupied. Uh, you know, the goal is to just go in there and just keep, keep it cash flowing and just keep maintaining it. So those are core assets. They, 
have lower returns, but again, they have lower risk. And then you have on the opposite end of the spectrum, opportunistic deals like a build to rent where, you know, you're going in for the first few years, all you're doing is building There's higher risk because uh, regulations can change, um, prices can change, supply chain disruptions can happen. So there's more risk, but the returns can be significantly higher. And then in between, you have the value add, stabilized value add, which is a space we like to be in because uh, you have assets that are stabilized, they're cash flowing, but you have the ability to go in, renovate some of those units, increase the, the income. And when you increase the income in multifamily, you increase the property price and you see that big boost in returns, although the asset is already stabilized. And so there's a buffer over there. So that's in between the core assets and the opportunistic assets in terms of risk return profile, right? So your performance metrics vary depending on hold period. They vary depending on you know the risk of the deal, which you can see based on whether it's a value add deal versus an opportunistic deal. Same thing with different asset classes. We talked about this last time. Class A assets versus Class D. Class A assets are your newer buildings. Where, you know they don't have any maintenance issues. Uh, they have higher quality tenants. Class D are your properties in older neighborhoods uh, with higher crime rate. Uh, tenant basis is very, is very different. And so Class A properties will give you higher returns, but they also have lower risk. Uh, and as you move along the spectrum B, C, and D, you do get higher returns, but there's also a higher risk. So I'm sorry, Class A gives you lower returns and lower risk, right? So lower returns, lower risk with Class A, and Class D is higher returns, higher risk. And then um, there's the whole spectrum over there. So your performance metrics are, are going to vary depending on the risk of the deal. They're going to vary also depending on leverage, on how much debt you take. So the more debt you take, when you have higher leverage, your returns are going to be higher, but there's also higher risk, right? So it's another way where risk affects your returns, but I want you to be aware of that. And so when you're comparing two deals, if you don't factor this in, you really can't be comparing them apples to apples. Um, your returns also vary depending on the market cycle that you're in and the interest rate environment. And so if you looked at deals, say last year versus deals you're seeing right now, we're in a different market cycle. Market sentiment is different and interest rates are super high. And that does affect uh, the returns that you're seeing. And if you are comparing deals from last year, you'll notice that the returns are different. And then finally, like I was saying, you can't really look at the performance metrics in isolation. You really have to look at what assumptions have been made to arrive at those numbers because you can take any number and you can take any deal and make it look really um, attractive by fudging those numbers. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to keep it very simple for everything over here. I'm going to give you three to five things that you focus on so that you can easily understand what's going on. Right. So like we said, there are all these factors that affect projected returns. But I'm going to talk about the value add space that we like to be in. And I'm going to talk about what returns look like right now so that you have an idea of what it looks like. Because I find that a lot of times people go into syndications. They don't really know, especially if it's your first few syndications, right? You really don't know what industry standards are. And that's where a lot of confusion comes in. And so I feel like if you're going in, I want you to really know what industry standards are. So let's talk today about what, proje uh, what um, projected returns look like in that value add space for multifamily deals uh, in the current interest rate environment. So the first metric, so there are literally three metrics that you need to remember, right? And that's what's oftentimes going to be given to you. The first one is cash on cash return. And cash on cash return, for those of you who are in the space, you know, it's just your cash flow um, based as, uh, expressed as a percentage of your initial investment, right? So cash on cash return, that's what you're getting in terms of returns from cash flow every year that you're in the deal. And hopefully you're getting distributions every quarter. Now, um, cash and cash returns can vary anywhere from six to 
right? And the lower returns uh, you would see, this is just cash flow, right? And like we said before, if you have a development project, then initially you're not really going to see a lot of cash flow. But if you have a stabilized asset like that, those core assets or something that's already completely occupied, you know that you're already cash flowing from your one, right? So cash flow tends to be higher in stabilized assets and lower in development assets. And that makes sense because it takes time for the business plan to be executed if it's a ground up development. Right. So that's what you should expect to see in terms of cash and cash returns. Now, the next number is going to be what we call IRR or internal rate of return. Now, that's confusing because we don't really use that a lot outside of the real estate space. But IRR is similar to your average annualized returns or AAR, which is what we use to look at the stock market performance. And so I think that's something that a lot of you would be familiar with. So the only difference is that IRR factors in the time value of money. So if you have a deal where you're receiving, like the deal we have in Atlanta right now, where in year three, you're getting a bulk of your money back, that's gonna have a higher IRR because your money's returned to you quickly and you could take that money, reinvest it and create further income, right? So the IRR takes into account time value of money. And that's the that's the most significant difference. And in the current environment for a value add project, those numbers are typically between 12 and 17 percent. Now, um, if you look at historical performance for most syndicators over the last five years, those numbers are closer to 24 percent, including most of the sponsors that we work with. And the reason is because we were, um, you know, uh, because the real estate market did really, really well. And so, like I said, again, these numbers are based on the environment you're in, the interest rate environment you're in, the market cycle, and a lot of other factors. But um, 12 to 17% is what we're seeing in terms of IRR for value add deals at the moment, right? Again, your IRR is going to be higher for development projects because you know you have a, a higher risk but higher returns over there. You're gonna, it's gonna be lower for those core assets which are already completely rented out and they are stabilized. But that's just the risk reward spectrum that we were talking about, right? And then this is a very useful indicator to compare different syndications that you're investing in. Okay, so we talked about IRR, we talked about cash on cash return. The next one is going to be equity multiple. Now, equity multiple, to keep it very simple, all it means is that how much is your money multiplying for the duration of the deal, right? And now this is going to differ depending on the hold period, right? So this is something and intuitively it makes sense. If you have a longer hold period, your money's hopefully, you know, um, giving you a, a higher equity multiple. And uh, this is where it's important to compare apples to apples when you have two deals that have a five-year hold, that's when you would be able to use this to compare those two, de two deals, right? So um, let me give you an example of the current deal we're in in Atlanta. Um, you put $100,000 in, in class B, and I'm going to talk about class A and B shares. Cla as a class B investor, at the end of five years, you will likely have 175,000 returned to you. And that's based on very conservative estimates, right? Because you also always want to have con conservative um, underwriting and you uh, over delivering is always going to be the goal. But that's what it looks like, which means 1.75 is your equity multiple. And that, that's it's as simple as that. So those are the three metrics you need to know. IRR, cash on cash and equity multiple, right? Those are the metrics that are used to compare deals. Now, I wanna talk about two other things before we move on to assumptions. What about AAR, average annualized returns? How is that different? Now, it's the same, similar to IRR, except it doesn't 
factor in um, the time value of money, which means it doesn't factor in when the money was returned to you. It's uh, it's as simple as this is what you got over the course of five years. So on average, this is how much you got every year. And again, this I find to be an easy metric to compare um, real estate returns to the stock market returns, um, and it factors in cash flow. It factors in your the you know your uh, profit at sale, and it's going to be typically over fifteen percent. Oftentimes, it's close to twenty percent for most deals. Uh, but again, it's going to uh, differ depending on the deal that you're in, right? Um, so that's average annualized returns. And then I want to talk about different classes because if you talk about when you talk about investing in syndications, most syndications will have class A shares, class B shares, and class C shares. Class C shares are usually the reserve class. It's for people who are putting in over a half million or a million dollars. We're not going to talk about it. But class A and B, it can be a little confusing. So I want to touch upon that so you know what makes sense for you. Now, class A shares are typically, it's a return annual, like you get a guaranteed annual return from cash flow, right? And oftentimes, so just to give you an example, uh, it it's close to 10%. So if you invest in class A shares and you put $100,000 in, you're supposed to get 10% in cash flow every for every year that you're in the deal, which means at the end of five years, you've likely received $50,000 and you're left, you you know, when we exit the deal, you get $150,000 in your pocket. That's it. Now, class B shares, on the other hand, give you a preferred return, which means, and you know, we'll talk about preferred return, but you do get cash flow over the course of the deal. It's often less than what you get with a class A deal because um, it depends on how much the asset is cash flowing. So it's not guaranteed, but when you we exit the deal, you get a profit split. So you get a portion of the upside on exit. So what ends up happening is that with most deals, like for example, the current deal we have, class B shares, you get around 7% in cash flow for every year that your money is in the deal, just from cash flow. And you may not hit it the first few years, but if you don't, then the goal is that at the end, during exit, before the profits are split, you're caught up, you're given um, the equivalent of 7% for each year that you had your money in the deal before the spl profit splits made. And then you also get a portion of the split. And so to give you an example for what class B returns would look like for that same five-year hold period where you could have made 150,000 for every 100,000 you invested in the deal as a class A investor, if you were a class B investor, you would likely get lower in terms of cash flow every year, but at the end, you'd probably get profits and that would give you anywhere from 175 to 200,000 dollars at the end of those five years including the capital that you put in right so you're almost doubling your money so that's the difference right so class a gives you those you know it's fixed returns from cash flow that you're getting every year as opposed to class b where you don't really get the fixed return um and you probably you will likely catch up towards the end you may not get it every year you're in the deal but at exit you get the 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 profit split and you get a higher return and Everyone's going to have a different need. So for those of you, and this is why I say always think, do you want the cash flow or are you more concerned about capital growth? And you can pick what makes the most sense to you. Some of our investors also put a little bit in A and a little bit in B to get um, the benefit of both. So they get more consistent cash flow and then they also get the upside. Um, and that's called get, uh, doing a blended investment, right? So that's an option also. So, so that's as far as returns are concerned. We covered it. You're good. And hopefully it wasn't too confusing. Now, I want to talk next about assumptions because like I said, you could take any deal and you could make the numbers look very attractive. But the most important thing is what variables were used to, you know, um, in the beginning to push out those numbers. That's the most important thing. Right. And so there are so many variables that go in there. 
but I'm not going to give you all those variables. I'm going to give you three important variables that I think it's important for you to think about if you want to assess those deals. Again, like I said, you can pick a sponsor where you trust the sponsor, you know them, you know this transparency, you know what kind of deals they invest in, and that fits your profile. And if you do that, you're good. But if you want to get a little more technical, let's talk about three simple assumptions that are easy for you to look at um, that should be given in the slide deck. You can ask the sponsor if you don't see it. But seeing that, you'll really be able to say if the deal is conservative or not, right? So the first one is going to be rent growth. Just to give you an example, um, the deal we have in Atlanta right now, it is year over year, that market has seen a 24% increase in rents, right? So if you compare September of this year to September of last year, there's a 24% increase in rents. Now, if we use that number in our underwriting, we would look phenomenal in terms of our returns, right? It's going to it's going to definitely look super super attractive. But as sponsors, as operators, we don't want to use those numbers because that may not be a true indication of what's going to happen in the future. And so typically rent matches inflation, right? And that inflation is around 3%. Therefore, um, rent growth is typically around 3 to 4%. And that's what we use in our underwriting. And that's very simple. That's easy to see. Um, another thing about rent is you can also, most sponsors will also tell you what market comps are, which means they look at other properties that are the same size in that same sub-market around the same age, and they will say, this is what rents are looking like. And so we think our rents can go up this much. And you want to look at that and say, hmm, that makes sense. And they should make it simple for you to see and they should provide you with that data. Um, and I think those are important things to look at. Now, sometimes uh, a deal is even better because they will tell you, hey, even within the car the asset that we're acquiring in the last three months, we've seen rents go up 200 to uh, $600. And those are actually numbers from the current deal we have. And so in a really, really good deal, you have under market rents. And that's like low hanging fruit because the, the sponsors can just go in and say, this is very easy right now. This is what the uh, the, the rental market is. And all of these um, rents uh, leases aren't caught up to it. So we can easily go and catch it. So those are a few areas where you can look at rent growth and look at what assumptions the uh, sponsors are looking to see if they are being conservative in their analysis. Now, number two, look at leverage. This is very, very easy. Um, it's called LTV or loan to value, where you can um, see what the loan to value is. Now, for most of us purchasing, say, investment properties, you have to put 25% as a down payment. That means your LTV or loan to value is 75%, right? Simple. So um, if I put... 40% down, then my LTV or loan to value is 60%, right? Now, uh, you want to look at that, especially in the current environment, and you want to make sure that your sponsors are not over leveraged because um, the reason commercial loans are very different from conventional mortgages or loans you take for a primary residence and having a lot of equity in the deal really de-risks you because even if market prices fluctuate, you still have significant equity in the deal so you can sell or you can refinance, which you can't do if you don't have enough equity. So uh, when you have high loan to value or you're, you know, you're really leveraged in the deal, that will give you higher cash on cash returns and higher IRRs, but this is probably not the time to be investing in those deals. So uh, in all of our deals that we've done in this year, we've been uh, under 70% in terms of loan to value. The current deal in Atlanta is under 60% loan to value, which means that there's 40% equity in the deal. We're only taking a loan for the remain uh, the, the rest of the 57%, right? So that's important to see, and that's very easy to see, right? So look at the rent growth assumptions. What numbers are they putting in, in terms of what they anticipate rents to look uh, to grow over the course of the deal? How much leverage are they using? And the last one's going to be your exit cap rate spread. 
Now, if you don't understand this, that's fine. This is just a little complex, but for those of you who want to look at it, it's also a very simple metric and a very important metric to see what your sponsors are doing. So what's a cap rate? So cap rate is the multiple ways of describing it, but it, it the most important way of looking at a cap rate is uh, it's a reflection of market sentiment. So how much are people willing to pay um, to purchase an income producing asset in the current market cycle, right? So for example, um, the current cap rate for the asset we have in Atlanta is 4.3%, which means that if it's generating income, someone's willing to pay uh, a cap rate of 4.3%, and that actually helps you determine the, the property price, right? And so you wanna use cap rates to determine sale price. So that's what your sponsor is using it for. They're not really using it to determine a purchase price it's not an exact science as far as purchase price is concerned. But this deal that we have right now, the entry cap rate for us is 4.3%. Um, the, the point is that, especially in the market cycle that we are, you want to see your sponsors, the exit cap rate, like at sale, this is what our cap rate is going to be. You want to see that cap rate at least 0.5% above what they're entering at. Um, and what that means is, um, and you've probably heard this over the last year, people have said, Cap rates have compressed. All it means is that uh, property prices have gone up. And when cap rates decompress, it means that property prices are going down. Now, we don't know what is gonna happen with property prices, but at this in this market, we want to be underwriting to see that even if property prices grow up and the cap rate is expanding, we should still have, have those projected returns should be based upon um, a, a cap rate increasing and property prices going down, right? That's the important thing. And so typically for every year that you're in the deal, you want to see um, the cap rate go up by 10 basis points or 0.1%. And so if you're in the deal for five years, you want to see that cap rate spread be around 0.5%. Now, if you're super conservative, for this deal, I believe um, the entry cap rate was 4.3% and the exit cap rate was close to 5.3%. So there's almost a 5.1 or 5.3%. So there's almost um, a 1% spread between the cap rates. And that's another easy metric. So just looking at, oh, what's the entry cap rate? What's the exit cap rate? And looking at that spread and seeing if they're being conservative is an easy way to see what are they projecting the sale price to be? What are they projecting market sentiment to be when they're selling? Um, and if they think it's going to be amazing at that point and cap rates are compressing, uh, then they could miss the mark, right? And you don't want that happening. You want them to be underwriting for worst case scenario. Okay, if you didn't understand that, that's fine. Uh, you can use the other metrics. They're easy to understand. Or you can just ask the question and just see what the spread is and uh, have a discussion about it. There are other metrics. There are other assumptions, vacancy, expense ratios, you know, uh, expense growth. We're not going to get into all of that. That gets too complex. So we talked about what are the me metrics and we talked about what assumptions do you need to look at to analyze if the deal is conservative or not. Um, I want to talk a little bit about fees before going on to the overall uh, risk reward analysis, right? And I promise to talk about it because when you're looking at a deal, it, you know, you want to look at the um, at the fees also. Um, and sometimes the fee, fees and profit splits, right? So there are ways where uh, the profit splits can be structured so that they are actually incentivizing um, the sponsors to perform really well, and they the, the, which means that they're aligned with investor interests. And we can talk about what to look for and, uh, and how to analyze that. But I think the most important thing, and I mentioned this last time, more than seeing the fees, I want you to focus on looking at uh, the risk that a deal has, uh, looking at the returns that already have the fees baked in, 
And then looking at the sponsor, right? So the sponsor, the risk and the returns of the deal is more important than the fees of the fees of the deal. I'll give you a few examples, but let's first go over what to normally expect, right? So uh, normal uh, industry standards, because I said we'll talk about industry standards, you know what it is. So anytime someone talks about it, you don't know if that's standard or not. Um, acquisition fees. So industry standard for acquisition fees is anywhere from one to three percent. Um, and so this is at the point of acquisition for all the work they're doing to acquire the property, to underwrite the property, to vet the property, due diligence, all of that. Disposition, that's at the back end when they're selling the deal. Uh, it's typically around 1%, uh, not more than that, 1% of, of sale price. Again, the 1% to 3% for acquisition is, tip is either 1% uh, to 3% of capital raised or 1% to 3% of the property price, the purchase price. Now, um, over the course of the deal, as they're managing the deal, something called asset management fees may be charged. It's typically around 1% of the income the property is generating, um, the, the gross income, or 1% of the equity that's committed to the deal. It could be either of those things. Now, when we talk about splits, right, what are the industry standards for splitting the profits? How does that get split? How does the cash flow get split? How does the um, how does the, the profit get split? And that's an interesting question. That's an important question. I want you to know what industry standards are. So um, with the cash flow, right, the cash on cash return that we talked about, there are two ways. There could be a straight split, which means that anytime there's cash flow, the sponsors get 30% and then the investors get 70%, right? That's a straight split. But oftentimes you'll see sponsors um, do something called a cumulative preferred return, which means that like we talked about the 7% um, cash and cash return for class B investors in the current deal. Let's take that example. If you have a cumulative return, it means that till you've hit 7% in cash flow for every year that you've held the money in the deal, the sponsors don't get any, um, any part of the, ca uh, of the, of the cash flow, right? So, uh, once you've hit 7% for every year that you're in the deal, it's only after that that the sponsors get their catch up. Now, this just makes sure that investors have the first claim on cash flow. And that makes sense. That's That favors the investors. Um, same thing with profit splits. What is common for profit, profit splits? You will see anything from 50% going to sponsors and 50% going to investors versus 70% um, going to the investors and 30% going to the sponsors, right? And then you have people, uh, there, there are those situations where you can have something called a waterfall where uh, after a certain point, after a certain IRR number is hit, then the, the sponsor split shifts, right? So for the first 13% IRR till that point, the sponsors may get 30% and the investors get 70%, but after the sponsors overperform and overshoot that hurdle, the rest, the surplus at that point, then gets split 50-50 between the investors and the sponsors. So that is, a, again, a way to ensure that the sponsors uh, perform better because then they get um, uh, they get better returns, right? Their, their returns increase. And so there are different ways of doing this. And I think the important thing to remember, like I said before, is that as long as it's a good sponsor, as long as the risk and the return profile of the property matches what you're getting, that's more important than fees or splits. And I'll tell you why. Let's look at a few scenarios. Now, if you have a deal where there are no fees, right? And it's a, it's a value add, so the same risk profile, right? A value add deal, no fees, and there's a 50-50 split, and you're getting an 8% um, IRR or 8% average annualized return, right? You have those, those returns versus a deal where you get 
two percent in uh, where there are two percent in fees um, being paid out but there's a 70 30 so the investors get 70 percent and, and the sponsors get 30 percent there's a 70 30 split but your returns for the same risk right for the same risk profile are above 20 percent um aar and then the fees are already baked you want to make sure the fees are baked into those projected returns then i want you to think about that and it almost intuitively doesn't make sense to go for the lower returns you want to be in that higher return um, if you have this if sponsors that you trust and like the same and if you have uh, the same risk profile for the deals right so that needs to be in so another way of looking at this if you have a deal where the sponsors are putting in a million dollars of their money into a deal and they're getting say six hundred thousand dollars in fees versus another deal where the sponsors are not putting any money in the deal and not getting any fees how do you compare those two deals, right? So uh, that's why I feel like between fees and splits, yes, there is a way to look at it, but I think the most important thing is going to be the sponsor and then the risk reward profile. Okay, perfect. Now, uh, going on to the final topic, how do you do risk reward analysis, right? Now you have all this data, okay, you know what the industry standards are, you've vetted the sponsor, you've vetted the market, you've looked at the deal and looks conservative. Um, how do you analyze your risk? Now, a lot of this we've already talked about, there are a few more metrics I wanna talk about quickly. Again, I will um, reinforce this. If you have vetted the sponsor and you trust the sponsor, you don't really have to do all this due diligence if it's confusing. But whenever you're ready to do it, you have the information. Okay, And I think it's always it's OK to have all these tools and we use them and we need to use them. I just don't want to overwhelm you with the information. Now, when we talk about risk reward analysis, like risk analysis, like is this does this make sense for me? The first thing is going to be your criteria, right? Do you want to be investing in core stabilized assets and like it's lower risk but lower returns and I'm fine or do you want to be opportunistic and invest in those ground up developments and say I'm going to get super high returns and you know it's riskier but I'm okay with that or do you want to be somewhere in the middle where you're saying it's a stabilized asset it's it's a occupied there's 94% occupancy and then there's a plan to go in and catch up on leases and that's super simple and then go do the value add and and increase efficiencies in operations I want to be there. You get to pick where you want to be, but that's that's your criteria, right? Class A to Class C properties. We talked about that. Do you want something that's newly built that's going to have low maintenance versus something that's a Class C asset that's 100 years old? Where do you want to be? You get to pick that, right? And you also get to pick the markets you want to be in. And, and if you um, haven't listened to um, part one, I talk a lot about picking the right markets and how that, again, de-risks your deal. If you're on landlord-friendly markets with strong demographics, that's a good thing. How do you de-risk the deal? It's like five things, and so that's about it, okay? So it's simple. Uh, the sponsor is gonna be the biggest way you de-risk the deal. That's the most important thing. Number two, the debt, right? What's the leverage like? Are you comfortable with the leverage? Higher leverage, higher IRR, but higher risk, right? So what's leverage looking like? Number three, what are the assumptions looking like? Are they conservative? How, what is rent growth projected to be? What is organic rent growth in that market? And what numbers are the sponsors using to, to run, the, you know, for their underwriting, right? Like I said, we have 24% year over year rent growth in the Atlanta market, but we're using three to 4% for our underwriting. So it's 4% for year one, and then it's 3% after that. So what are the assumptions looking at? Like, do we have conservative assumptions? Um, the next one, the business plan, right? Like I said, so is it just value add? Is it already stabilized? Um, do we have those leases that we can easily go in there and over time increase the rents to catch it up to market rents? Um, that's low hanging fruit. There's the loss to lease that we're gonna go and catch up. That's a simple business strategy and there are multiple layers to it. And so it's not just the value add, but we have uh, do the sponsors have multiple ways of going in and adding value to that deal? That's important, right? And then 
Finally, another way of assessing the rents is going to be um, market comps, looking at those market comps and saying, okay, this is what the market looks like and this is the data that's provided to me. So it makes sense. The business plan makes sense. Another number I really want you guys to look at, and it's a very easy number to look at, so I'm going to mention this, is median household income. Um, I'm not sure if I talked about this last time. I may have, but I think we did. Uh, if, the, if the median household income is $72,000, and your sponsors will give you this number because they need to do market research and find out what rents, how much they can increase rents in that market. If the median household income is $72,000, it means every month, uh, on average, households are making $6,000, so they can afford to pay $2,000 in rent. That's a third of their monthly income, right? Um, and that those are pretty standard numbers that you can use to assess things. That will give you an idea of whether the deal makes sense in that market, right? Those are simple ways of, of, of checking these things. Now, lastly, stress testing. How do you stress test deals? Only three things to go over here. Now, the first thing is going to be a sensitivity analysis uh, table. Stress testing deal, deals is really important. If you, uh, For those of you who are in the coaching program, you know that when we're running numbers for long-term, short-term rentals, we're always stress testing our deals. We're going to do the same thing for multifamily, right? Um, and there are three ways to stress test your deals. Actually, many, many ways. Three simple ways for you to look at three, like, you know, numbers and be like, oh, this makes sense. So I think even if the deal for any reason um, doesn't perform as expected, the returns are still going to be decent. So uh, often sponsors will give you a sensitivity analysis table. Okay, and uh, over there they'll have, um, you know, on the X and Y axis, on one side they will have returns and how those ret how your returns vary when other metrics vary. And so the other metrics can be vacancy. If vacancy increases, how is this deal going to perform? Uh, if the hold period shifts, if we have to hold it for five years just because of market conditions, what does that do to the returns, right? Um, it's the same thing. Um, it oftentimes also has exit cap in there. So if you know, if the market sentiment is pretty good and home price uh, and uh, prices are increasing, how is this deal going to perform? And how does it perform if if the uh, if the uh, cap rate is uh, is going up and if uh, if people are willing to pay less for multifamily? How does that affect the deal? Just having that spreadsheet and looking at it really helps you understand how the deal performs, and that's a, a way to stress test the deal. Now, the, the second number for stress testing is going to be what we call break-even occupancy, which means how much does uh, occupancy have to drop to for this deal still to make sense from the perspective of the operators being able to make the debt payment. Now, the last two metrics are all de uh, dependent on the loan terms, right? Now, loan terms for commercial properties are very different from conventional mortgages because in order to be able to hold the property, and, and this, is, this is really important because this is the difference between a good operator and a bad operator, in order to be able to hold the property, you need to be able to meet the debt service. Okay, if you don't meet the debt service, yeah, they, the property can be foreclosed on. And so these are two very important metrics. And when your op occupancy drops below a certain point, you will no longer be able to generate the income you need to meet all your expenses and make the debt payment, right? And so the question is going to be, what's the break-even occupancy for this property? And for more, for you know, a property that for a deal that's conservative, you want the break-even occupancy to be in the you know anywhere from the mid 60s to mid 70s. So even if the occupancy drops to about 70 percent, they should still be able to meet all their uh, meet all their expense needs and meet the the debt uh, the, make the debt payment the mortgage payment right. And then the other number is going to be DSCR, which is also related to debt uh, the debt se uh, service coverage ratio. 
And all this means that it's expressing your net operating income, your, you know, your income after all the other expenses are taken out except for the mortgage payment and making sure that you still have positive income left uh, to make your debt service uh, coverage, right? After basically after uh, your net operating income um, is expressed as a, as a factor of your, your debt service coverage. And usually you want that number to be um, upwards of 1.25, right? So when you have your net operating income, um, exceeds your debt service you know what you're paying for your mortgage payment uh by 25 percent, and that's a good thing and often times um your lender requires it to be at 1.25 so uh your net operating income is going to be higher than what your mortgage payment is um, in really conservative deals like the deal we have right now that number is anywhere from 1 1.5 to 1.8 depending on the year that you're in the deal which means that you're making one and a half times uh in in net operating income what you need to pay debt so that's a good thing and so when that gets closer to one then that makes the deal riskier and riskier so that's an easy number to look at okay that's it we're done so hopefully all of this made sense hopefully when you've gone through this and you've asked these questions to the sponsors you can understand if the deal is you know aggressive if it's realistic or if it's conservative and i would say for the next few years i would err on the side of being conservative okay and so Start off with your why. You know what your risk reward profile is. You vet the market, you vet the sponsor, which is gonna be super critical, and then you vet the deal. And hopefully you have the tools to do a risk return analysis. Now, again, for those of you who want um, to partner with Generational Wealth MD and GW Capital, it's generationalwealthmd.com slash syndication to get on our priority investor list. This way you get notified about upcoming opportunities um, before everybody else. And then for those of you who are interested in the current deal we have in Atlanta, it's generationalwealthmd.com slash Atlanta. And we have a narrow time frame. So if you are interested and we have a long wait list from the previous deal, make sure you put in your soft commit as soon as possible. Okay. Thank you again so much for bearing with me. I know that sometimes with the numbers, it can get a little overwhelming, but the more you listen to this and the more you use this in your analysis, then the next time you listen to someone do an investor webinar and go over a slide deck, or even if you have the ability to look at a slide deck, I feel like this will give you all the tools you know to be really confident that you're making the decision, the right decision. And always remember, um, every sponsor will take time to go, to go over the most important part of this, which again is going to be, does this deal meet my risk reward profile? My risk, does it meet my risk appetite? And does it give me the returns that I'm looking for? And whenever you want to have that conversation, make sure you call the sponsor and have a, a, a conversation with them. All of you are free to go always reach out to me, uh, book a call with me so we can go over that. Um, does it make sense for me from a return perspective, tax perspective? These are questions where we, I talk to you guys about all the time. Um, and that is going to be the most critical part and then vetting the sponsor. So hopefully this has given you the tools. Hopefully it wasn't too confusing. And uh, I hope that you feel empowered to go and do your own due diligence. Uh, I know it's probably like drinking from a fire hose, uh, but and I did my best to simplify it. There are so many metrics that we use during underwriting, but I think as an, as an investor, when you're investing passively, I wanted to keep it simple so I could give you a few easy numbers to remember and a few of the most critical things to look at so you can do your own due diligence. And I hope I did a good job. I'm always open to feedback. Let me know what you think about these episodes and I'm going to do more education in the syndication space. Let me know if there are other topics you want me to cover. Take care, guys. If you're interested in learning how to invest in long-term and short-term rentals the right way so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship, 
community, and vetted investor agents in strong markets across the country, then get on the waitlist for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate, and more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone.